Thanks for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. Our hope is that it helps you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. The things I want to, to say is that we go all the way back to chapter 1 and we remember that the goal of this is to continue the mission and ministry of Jesus while at the same time facing the opposition of Jesus. I'm not going to say that again because I've said it 10 times every time we've gotten together. But here's part of the problem. Thus far, we've not even gotten out of Jerusalem. And so this is why this week, this particular week is very exciting. Because as of today, uh, the gospel will begin to expand outside of Jerusalem. But it's only going to get to the boundaries of Israel. So here is my, someone thought it was a balloon, okay, tied to a helium tank, which I, I think is creative. It's like one of those uh, inkblot tests, right? What is this up here? This is a map of Israel. Sorry, it's not great. Okay, you have one in your handout we'll get to later. Um, but this is the Sea of Galilee. Uh, this is the Dead Sea. So Jerusalem would be right here on the other side of the wilderness. And what we're going to find today is we're going to move both north and south back and forth in our, in our text. And this, this pushing of the boundaries, I'm going to use the balloon analogy. It's like the blowing up of a balloon. See how I did that right there? It's like the blowing. The, the gospel is going to go out from Jerusalem, but it's going to be because of persecution. And we said the last time we were together that this persecution, in fact, it's a great persecution, and Saul's at the heart of it, is going to cause a scattering of seed. We're going to see that word used twice. Well, that scattering of seed is going to go out from Jerusalem. It's going to go to Samaria. It's going to go up to Damascus. It's going to go down here to Gaza, which is eventually going to take us, well, I guess it'd be this way, down to Ethiopia, south of Egypt. So the gospel right now is on the verge of going out, just as the book of Acts has said. This is why at the top of your handout, I include Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You'll receive the power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's where we've been so far for seven chapters. And then in all Judea, which is where we're going out from Jerusalem. This is Judea, this region right here by the Dead Sea. And then to Samaria, this region just to the north of Judea, but just to the south of Galilee. That's why Jesus has to go through Samaria to get to Jerusalem in the Gospels. And then to the ends of the earth. We're going to go out beyond those two regions, and we'll talk about the significance of that just here in a bit. Um, so we are at that kind of exciting phase in the book of Acts, and you're going to see, like what we saw at Pentecost, you're going to see again uh, the Holy Spirit do some things that are unusual. And in fact, you're going to see Peter at the heart of those things that are unusual. Three times Peter's at the heart of these, this expansion of the church. Number one, Pentecost. Number two here, as the gospel goes to Samaria, first time it goes outside of Jerusalem, first time it goes outside of Judea, Peter's going to end up here in Samaria. And then next week when we're together, we're going to find that Peter's going to have to visit Cornelius because the gospel's going to go to the Gentiles. Here's the other thing. Not only geographically are we moving, we are moving out when it comes to ethnic groups. Thus far, the gospel has gone to those who are Jewish. Paul's going to follow the same pattern of going to synagogues first and then extending the invitation of the gospel to the Gentiles. Right now, the invitation has already been given to the Jewish people of Jerusalem and Judea, but now it's also ethnically going out to a diverse group. It's going to go to the Samaritans. You and I both know from our own studies of Scripture and hearing the stories, the Jewish people consider the Samaritans, this is kind of language that they would mentally have, but half-breeds, or not, uh, maybe the word would be kosher. 
And part of the reason is, is back in 722 when the Assyrians came in, they exported a bunch of people, but then imported a bunch of other people. Those people got married, had babies. They were left in Samaria. So they would be, when it comes to the genealogy, they would be people that would no longer be uh, able to be in the priesthood, for example. So the Samaritans, not considered uh, Jewish, uh, kind of on the fringe though, still related. And then we have this gentleman who's going to be coming up from Ethiopia, but notice what he's doing. He's worshiping in Jerusalem. So he's still a God-fearer. He's kind of like a cousin. A God-fearer who wants to be a convert. He's not a, he's not a Jewish person. In fact, he can't be Jewish. We'll find out later because he's a eunuch, and we'll talk about that for just a moment, but not very long. And, uh, and so he is, he is still kind of like closely there. He's coming to worship at the temple, but we're not quite all the way to Gentiles yet. But notice how, we're, again, like a balloon blowing up. Sorry to use this metaphor multiple times now. Okay. We're, this gospel is going to expand, not just geographically, but ethical, eth- ethnically, uh, to different people groups, Samaritans, Ethiopians. Um, maybe it's helpful for us to pause just for a moment here and talk about uh, Ethiopians in the Greco-Roman world. Um, normally, in ancient literature, Ethiopians were recognized uh, for their skin color, and it was seen as a thing of beauty and intrigue. And in fact, when it comes to prejudice in the ancient world, we don't find examples, at least as far as I am aware, we don't find examples of skin color being a reason for prejudice. That's kind of like a now our thing. Um, But in the ancient world, it was more about people groups or familial groups and some of those dynamics instead of color of hair, color of skin, some of the things that we would associate as racism. So here is this Ethiopian eunuch. He's likely going to go back to Ethiopia, and there's possibly a Christian community that will start there, and church history has various traditions about that. So that's kind of the context of where we're going. Notice we're going to go north and south, north and south multiple times. Um, as we get started, we want to find ourselves in chapter 8, uh, verses 1 through 4. It's kind of an introduction for us today, and we'll find that the text starts with a connection to chapter 7. And you recognize this. And Saul approved of his execution. And who is the his? That is Stephen. Okay. So Saul is there. He's standing as judge over Stephen's execution. But what did Stephen see? This is our tie-in from last week. What did Stephen see? He saw Jesus standing as judge. Oh, at the right hand of God. Who's the real judge? Not Saul. It's Jesus. And Saul's going to have his eyes opened, actually closed first, and then opened a little bit later on as to who the real judge is. That's why it's significant in 2 Timothy that Paul, when he is now under court, in, under, uh, uh, judge, under judge of Nero, excuse me, uh, he is going to have the same kind of uh, language that Jesus is on the throne that Jesus stands as judge, that Jesus gives the crown of righteousness. So Saul approves of the the execution of Stephen, and on that day there was, this word great is the word mega. There was a mega persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Now, persecution in the ancient context, especially first century time frame, is not mandated widespread, but it is pocketed persecution that takes place. And here we have a pocket of persecution where Saul is going to be seeking out those who are followers of the way. And that word means the road. Some of you remember like country songs with the road referring to uh, Jesus as the way. Jesus said what? I am the way, the truth, the life. In fact, most of our encounters with Jesus, guess what? Are on a road as disciples, walking somewhere. So it's not a 
bad metaphor for us to talk about our discipleship with Jesus. Saul's going to persecute them, and on his own way, his own road, he's going to encounter Jesus, and then he's going to have to find a road called straight. It's going to be intriguing to watch this conversion of Saul take place. But we have to put that on hold. Because we have this mega persecution, it's going to scatter people. Notice what it says there in verse 1. This great persecution caused them to be scattered among the regions of Judea and Samaria. And he's not talking about the apostles. So the apostles were able to stay, probably because the Jewish leaders were afraid of the people. Remember, this has been true in the book of Acts. that The Jewish leaders are afraid that the people will riot, that they'll lose their power from Rome. So they're not going to pursue these leaders. So who do they pursue? Well, people like Stephen, people like Philip who's Greek. So the Jewish people would see them as outsiders anyhow. We had seven men who served the Hellenistic Greek widows. Stephen was one of them. The next one is Philip. And we're going to see those Hellenistic widows and that group in the synagogue of freedmen involved in this persecution again, not only here, but later on, Paul is going to come back and you know who he's going to preach to? (laughs) This is going to be funny. Paul's going to come back and he's going to preach to that very same group of Hellenistic people, probably the same synagogue that he was a part of, that was a part of standing over at the execution of Stephen. Imagine that turn of events. Paul stands over, Stephen's execution approves of it. At the end of our time together today, he's going to come back and he's going to be preaching, Jesus has risen from the dead. Jesus is on the throne. Jesus is the one who stands at the right hand of God. What can cause that kind of turnaround? I think nothing less than the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, Saul's conversion, he says this himself, is meant to be an example of the mercy of God. He he says this in in 1 Timothy. He says that I was the first place sinner, blasphemer, persecutor, an opponent of the church. But I was given mercy so that God's perfect example of grace could be shown to me. Wow. Wow. So we're going to see these stories take place today. But Philip is one of those that is scattered. And he's going to go, we're going to find, um, as this term is used, he's going to go on our map, north from Jerusalem, we'll come back to these other ones, to a city, and your version might say the city. Um, It's actually a manuscript question. We don't know if it's a city or the city in Samaria. There's a couple possibilities. Um, The map that's in your handout actually has a city labeled, and we just don't know that that one's actually the city that is there. Um, There are two possible cities that are recommended, and then there's a third one. One is Shechem. Um, This is not the one on your map. Uh, Shechem would have been an ancient city that would have been one of the capitals. This is when we go back to the Old Testament, we find burial grounds and Jacob's well, and uh, and, uh, we find fields here uh, that are mentioned in the Old Testament. Um, This is likely nearby where Jesus came through Samaria and the village of Sychar, the woman at the well, if you remember that story. Multiple times, Jesus and his disciples walk through. The other city that's recommended as a possibility is the Greek word for the the Latin word Augustus, like Caesar Augustus. So this Greek word Sebaste just means great one or the great. So Caesar Augustus just means Caesar the great in Latin. Sebaste would be a Greek word for Caesar the Great. And this name of this city is named by Herod the Great in honor of Caesar Augustus. This is a possibility of where they are as well. Problem with that, even with the label in your map, is it's a very Gentile city. And, and so there's some questions about whether or not this was the city that they're going to. 
ultimately I land on, we don't really know, but it's a city in Samaria. Now, this is fun when it comes to Philip being the one who's going, because Philip, you recognize, has some Greek background. He's Jewish, but he's Greek-speaking. He knows Greek culture. And so he's able to go into one of these cities, and as we find this, this word scattered, used twice, is the word seed. It's like pine trees when they catch on fire. I'm from Colorado. What do pine trees do? The pine cones break open and they scatter seeds for new pine trees that are going to be laid out. Persecution acts like that in this moment where God is going, okay, it's time to get out of Jerusalem. Let's go. What's the catalyst? Suffering, persecution that sends them out. And one of the first places that is found is this place of Samaria. So when Philip is there, you can see in your text, verse 6, the crowds paid attention to him. They see the signs that he did and the same things that Jesus did are continued in Samaria, and there was much joy in that city. I want you to kind of follow the responses to each of these, because what happens is we found great persecution leads to what? Great lamentation. In fact, that word lamentation is a a Jewish form of crying and weeping at a funeral. Uh, We know this, that kind of Western uh, culture, European culture is kind of that British stiff upper lip. We, We don't cry. And, but in the East, in Eastern culture, it's actually the opposite of that. At a funeral, it would be shameful not to cry, not to weep, not to mourn out loud. And so you would actually hire people to mourn at your funeral. And the wailing would be great and loud. And, and Herod the Great, actually, uh, when he was getting ready to die, he took Jewish nobles and brought them, actually it would be right about here, into a city called Caesarea, we'll visit there later, into the Hippodrome, the horse track, and told his sister Salome, when I die, I want you to execute all of these Jewish nobles and wealthy uh, people in the, in the Jewish population. Why? Because I want there to be mourning at my funeral, and unless we do this, people won't mourn for me. Now, she, being shrewd like her brother, when he passed away, didn't do that, pardoned them, and became one of the four regents, co-regents of the empire, uh, over the kingdom. She was just as shrewd as her brother. But this mourning, great, great lamentation, leads to, notice what we have in Samaria, great joy, much joy. Not the same word great, but much joy that is there. And we're going to find that this word joy is going to be a theme as the gospel goes to these new places. And so Philip's going to bring the message of Jesus, but also the healing of Jesus. I want to pause and ask the same kind of question we've asked before. When it comes to miracles in the book of Acts, I want to kind of just observe some things about them. Notice that miracles seem to be grouped around when the gospel is going into new places or launching something new, whether that's Pentecost, whether that's the Samaritans, whether that's the Gentiles. But I I look at the book of Acts and I go, but they didn't happen everywhere and every time. So Holy Spirit does what he wants when he wants. What are miracles? They're signs that say, this is what the kingdom is like. But there are also promises that say, when you follow Jesus, this is the ultimate end of this kingdom. Now, we live in a broken world right now. And sometimes we pray for miracles. And I do believe this. Sometimes miracles take place. And sometimes they don't. And one of the things, whether they be miracles in the Bible or miracles that take place here, one of the things I firmly hold to is that they are not meant to give us our best life now. They are meant to point us to the fact that our best life is the established kingdom in the future, in heaven. So we have these signs that are there for the Samaritans that reaffirm uh, what Jesus has already done. And we recognize, like, Jesus has been here before. In fact, 
it's interesting to me that Jesus, if this is Sychar, if this is Jesus coming by the region of Shechem, there was a woman who met him at the well, and what we found out is she left her jar at the well, and what would she go do? She went back into her village, and she said, come and see the man who told me everything I've ever done. <laughs> that was, she had quite the story, and whether that was her story that she did or stories that were done to her, which I think is probably what happened to John 4, could this be the Messiah? And they start coming, and Jesus says, look, the fields are ripe unto harvest. Problem with that in John 4? It wasn't harvest season when Jesus was there. Scholars talk about the fact that the Samaritans would have worn white caps, and that even in the harvest fields that were not white unto harvest, here you have these Samaritans coming with the white caps that resemble wheat that is ready for harvest, and Jesus saying, look, the harvest is ready. So perhaps the harvest in Samaria is ready for Philip to be there. And there's much joy that it is there. So they are accepting Christ. They are being baptized into him. But again, a question comes up because there's someone there, verse 9, whose name is Simon. He had practiced magic in the city, it says, and he had amazed all the people. And he was saying about himself, I am somebody great. You could just picture this right now. You could picture his social media platform. You could picture he sells books and cassette tapes everywhere he goes, right? He's that kind of guy. Um, And at the same time, we find this character that's not all that surprising. This is someone who comes into the church, looks authentic, but then we discover something about them. They're wanting to use the gospel or the church for their own purposes, So Simon's heart is revealed rather quickly, isn't it, in this particular story? We find this, that he sees what Philip is doing, and he sees that as Peter and John are going to come into town, they lay hands on people, we'll come back to that in just a moment, and they somehow impart the ability, the gift, to heal people. Simon goes, well, I want a piece of that. How can I get at that? And we find that he wants this for his own gain, so that he can be great, and so that he can earn and gain money, his own platform. So this story reminds us in Samaria of something similar that happened in Jerusalem. Do you remember another story of people who were greedy and thought that they would use the church and use the the benefaction or the generosity of the church for their own gain? Ananias and Sapphira. They died. Simon got off a little bit easy, but he comes to the place where he is faced with his own need to repent. Now, a couple other things about this story that's important, and then we'll pause and ask some questions. Number one... We find this dynamic, that the people in Samaria were baptized into Jesus, but did not have, uh, did not receive the Holy Spirit. We need to ask, what does that mean? Because I thought in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, that it said, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sin, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So what is this? What's going on? We're going to ask that question. Can I tell you another couple things as we put those pieces together? It's also interesting that Peter and John have to come. Peter and John, down here in Jerusalem, come down. This is always important. It's elevation. They go north, but they come down from Jerusalem to Samaria. And I think the reason is why is a couple fold. Uh, Number one, Peter was told, I'm going to give you the keys to the church. Now, the rest of the disciples, the apostles, are told that as well in in, in Matthew 18. Matthew 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Peter says. Peter, on that rock, or you, the rock, I'm going to build my church. It's either confession or Peter, probably both. And I'll give you the keys 
to the kingdom. Or whatever you loose will be loosed in heaven. Whatever you uh, tie will be tied in heaven. Or bound will be bound in heaven. In other words, forgiveness or guilt. Uh, Peter, this is also true, Matthew 18, verse 18, of all of the disciples. Whatever you bind, whatever you loose. Peter and John are sent as delegates from Jerusalem to Samaria to welcome those who have accepted Christ into the kingdom. That's their responsibility as the disciples, as the apostles of Jesus. So that's why they come into town. I do find it interesting. John, remember James and John? One time when they were in Samaria, Samaritans did not welcome Jesus. Remember what they said? Jesus, do you want us to pray that fire come down on heaven and consume all these people? Now John is coming back, John the beloved disciple, and he's coming back to receive them in love into the, into the family of God. Jesus, I think, is winking. Oh, John, <laughs> this is good. And so Peter and John come. So let me, co- let me come and pull some pieces together for you. I list some things in your handouts about the Holy Spirit. I think when it comes to this question, ultimately, about the Holy Spirit and what we find here, we have a couple options. And I've tried to summarize these. Honestly, this week I've been trying to dig into this particular story as much as I can and try to come to some conclusions myself. It's a difficult story. I just want to acknowledge that just for a moment. Not the story about Simon being uh, greedy and wanting to come to Jesus only for his own greed. I've seen people come to church for some of the very same reasons. And I said this back with Ananias and Sapphira, to build their business. But I see this in church leaders sometimes too. The Bible warns about it all the time. Church leaders are just greedy for selfish gain. And so they build a platform, they sell a book. And I'm always a little bit cautious about people who say, you have to come to me, I'm the great one, in order to get to Jesus. Simon loved being great, saw this as an opportunity, and saw Christianity, Philip, as a rival to that greatness. So that doesn't surprise me. The difficulty in the story is really this. They were baptized but did not receive the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Option number one. Catholics in the Pentecostal movement typically look at this story and would see this as a normative example of two-stage conversion. So the first stage in the conversion would be baptism. Obviously, Catholics would typically see this as infant baptism. And then the Holy Spirit, the giving of the Holy Spirit, the laying on of hands as confirmation later. So different than the Pentecostal and and other charismatic movements would be similar. Pentecostal movement obviously would see immersion by water as an example of a first stage. And a second stage would be a a physical laying on of the hands to receive the Holy Spirit, oftentimes with the assumed gifts of uh, miraculous gifts, whether that be speaking in tongues or other gifts that would go go along with that. So that is option number one. And we'll come back and ask some questions about it. Here's option number two. Some scholars hold that this, in this particular text, what is assumed is that at their baptism, they were also uh, sealed with the Holy Spirit or given the Holy Spirit, like what we find in Acts 2.38. But what they weren't given is what we observe in Philip, the ability to, to uh, carry out these miraculous uh, gifts. And so Philip is able to heal people. And that's different than what everyone is able to do, even in the book of Acts. And so when Peter and John come, they lay hands on people and pass this gift on to others who are then also able to miraculously heal people. The assumption in this particular option is that this is different than just the giving of the Holy Spirit that indwells inside of us. This is an empowerment that is for a special task or ability, which we see the Holy Spirit do in the Old Testament. 
Some in this particular view also hold that this was somewhat one generational, that the apostles did this, passed that gift on to whom they determined uh, they wanted to pass it on to, but then they weren't able to pass it on to anyone else. Does that make sense? So the apostles could give this gift or ask for this gift for someone, but they could not then turn around and ask that for others. That's maybe why, in this view, um, we see the miraculous manifestations when it comes to uh, a blanket or large dynamic start to fade out in the book of Acts. Uh, We notice Timothy, for example. Uh, We don't find him in Ephesus performing miracles. So that's option number two. Option number three, and I kind of put a star by this. This is where I tend to land. Uh, just so you kind of know from me. Um, This is not meant to be a normative story. In other words, a story that sets the example for all time. It's actually meant to cause you to go, wow, that's weird. And in fact, the very fact that it says they just had the baptism, they didn't receive the Holy Spirit, is because of Acts 2, 3, is meant meant to make you go, huh, weird. Scholars who hold this view go, why then? Well, is it because... We need to get Peter and John to come up here to welcome these outsiders who would never be inside of Judaism into the church. And that is the responsibility of Peter and John alone. And so the withholding of the Holy Spirit causes Peter, or excuse me, causes Philip, as he reports back to Jerusalem, to go, yeah, but something's not quite right yet. And Peter and John come up and investigate, and it's their responsibility then to unlock the door, there's the keys metaphor, and welcome these outsiders now inside the church for the very first time. Think about the significance of that. The Samaritans had built about 400, I think it's 400 uh, BC, their own temple on Mount Gerizim. The Jews destroyed it. That's why at the woman of the well, she's like, where should we worship, our temple or your temple? Jesus goes, neither one, my, my worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. There's rivalry between the two groups. For the very first time, there's going to be unity. And so it, perhaps it makes sense to need Peter and John, the representatives down in Jerusalem, the, the spokesperson, Peter, for the church, Acts chapter 2, here, Acts chapter 10, welcoming the Gentiles in, for him to lay out the welcome mat and say, no, they're in, lay hands on them, which is a commissioning. It is an imparting. And, and also then see the passing on of the Holy Spirit through the miraculous gifts that are then able to happen in Samaria. That's option number three. I tend to land there, that this is an anomaly, and it's meant to be so because it's such a, a new thing in the history and life of the church. And then option number four, it's similar, is that the Holy Spirit does whatever he wants, and we shouldn't assume that he's going to do the same thing twice. And in fact, the Holy Spirit, even in the book of Acts, acts in different ways. So we're going to come to the Gentiles, and they are going to have gifts of the Holy Spirit before they're baptized. And you're going to be like, wait, I didn't think that's how it's supposed to work. Here's part of our problem, and then I'll, I'll go answer some questions if I can. It, it has been part of our movement of, of not just Christian churches, but I would even say the Western uh, post-enlightenment church to try to turn everything into a formula. So we know some of these, the five-finger exercise and the restoration movement. Hear, b- repent, believe, confess, be baptized. Like we want everything to be a formula. And, and sometimes like the Holy Spirit gets some of those out of order. And can God sometimes work with that? I think sometimes God can work with that. So we've had people come here and go, you know, I believed in Christ my entire life. I've confessed, but I've, I've never been baptized. 
Okay, well, let's, let's talk about that. But, but I'll, the Holy Spirit can actually customize, and I think and this is where we need to lean into the Holy Spirit, not in me. I, I think there are some normatives, some things that we do to respond, but sometimes the Holy Spirit works with us and deals with whatever is actually going on and can put together this relationship with Jesus and move us in the direction we need. That's discipleship. I know this is true of my kids. That sometimes they, they don't all exactly respond the same way. I do believe you need all of those things. I don't necessarily know that they're in order. And yet, I know that when it comes to baptism, there's a dynamic that says, I need to believe first, otherwise it's not really baptism. I need to confess first, otherwise it's not really baptism. And, and so there are some components that you go, okay, but these do need to be a part of that when it comes to how they come together. All right, it's a confusing text, so let's pause here. What questions do you have? Yeah? I'll just make an observation. Uh, at this time, they, Peter, John, Philip, they... They still saw themselves as Jews. Absolutely. Like I know we're talking about like the church and like yeah. this new thing, but in their minds, like, they're still Jews. Yes. And they're welcoming now the Samaritans. Absolutely. And saying, no, really, they are actually it, with us. It's really helpful to have that perspective. And I'm just thinking, like, just how how uh, what a big it really would have been a big deal. Yeah. To have um, the disciples of a Jewish rabbi yeah. come and sanction what Philip did, I, and, I, and go like, no, it's not like Philip's just some rebel doing yeah. thing over here. Like, no, this is actually this is what Judaism is about, and you are mm -hmm. you are welcome into. The faith. It's, and they weren't I love it. trying to start a new faith or a new religion. Absolutely. Well, and even later on, we're going to find the word sect. Like the way is called, called a sect. It's, it's inside Judaism still. In fact, Rome would still see it. You're right. Rome would still see it as Judaism. That's why the Christianity, uh, Christianity early on enjoyed the protection of Rome until later on as, as we find this division where even the Jewish population um, in power is saying, no, 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 they're not part of us. Now, they, they are ethnically, they're Jewish and Gentile, but because they've opened the door, there's this faction that begins to build. It's really helpful. Okay, other observations, thank you for that. Other observations. This is where I always want to be clear, the church is not a new start of something new. Judaism, we're God's people, and then the church is something new. Uh, the church is the remnant of Israel, and Gentiles are grafted in. The Samaritans are grafted in. And Peter has the keys to graft, to unlock that door for them and bring them in. Okay? And then I don't know that Peter's not alone in that. So that the other apostles, we're going to see Paul is going to graft people in as well. So it's not just Peter. He's just the line leader. This is, I wrote an article about Peter one time in Peter's Confession and used uh, kind of elementary school. My wife was an elementary school teacher. The line leader isn't greater than anyone else. He just gives, the, uh, they, he or she gets the honor or privilege of being first. Well, that's Peter, right? He just, he's a line leader and he's the example. You follow him, you get in line, you follow him, but you're all equals. He just gets to be first and that's helpful for us. Okay, other, other questions, other thoughts? Okay, a lot of questions come up about the Holy Spirit and I'll be honest with you. Jesus, when he talks about the wind blowing where it pleases, sometimes that's helpful for me to go, I don't always know how the Holy Spirit acts. I don't always know what to expect from the Holy Spirit, but I want to surrender to the Holy Spirit. 
I want the Holy Spirit to, I want to be open to the Holy Spirit living and working and breathing and doing in my life. And I don't want to put the Holy Spirit in a box. And so I want to come back to Acts chapter 2 where I said that. I don't want to put the Holy Spirit in a box and say, he can't do this. But I also don't want to put him in a box and say, he has to do this every single time. Because I also know there's a danger, and this is part of my just pastoral work with people, of people feeling like if the Holy Spirit is not doing something in me or through me or with me, then my faith is not authentic. So if I'm not, you know, if I don't have experiences of the miraculous, um, then somehow my faith is not authentic. And what we find is that we actually then put the Holy Spirit in a box and say the Holy Spirit has to act this way. And otherwise my faith is illegitimate. And that's helpful for us. Okay. Yeah, please. When we believe, because we're talking about baptism and all that, when we believe in Christ, we all receive the Holy Spirit. I believe that's what the normative is in in the Bible. Whether I go to Titus, it's chapter 3, verse, I think it's verse 6, Titus 3, 6, Acts 2, 38. What, What we discover is the Holy Spirit acts in different ways, but we at baptism are filled with the Holy Spirit. We are, the word I like is actually the word sealed, identity marked. It's Toy Story where Andy writes his name on the bottom of Woody to say, you are mine. And the seal of the Holy Spirit is our identification as we're baptized into Christ in that relationship. Now, when we comes to this, there's other language that's used the Holy Spirit where the Holy Spirit comes on people and empowers them for a special task. That we see that in the Old Testament too, yeah. And I, so, is this what's going on here? Possibly that it's different or more than just what that is. But can then I go back and I go? But can the Holy Spirit choose to do that today? Yes. So the the technical word is I'm not a cessationalist, which means I I don't believe the Holy Spirit stopped doing miraculous things. I just don't think that it uh, is as common even in the New Testament, during every time frame, as it is during certain time frames, around notice, around Moses, around Elijah and Elisha, around Jesus's ministry. John the Baptist didn't perform miracles. That's interesting. So around Jesus's ministry and the early church's ministry. But then as elders and deacons in the church and scripture is established, it seems like those are less and less common. Can the Holy Spirit then choose here, today, when and where, and how special circumstances, atypical circumstances like this? I think the Holy Spirit can, and I think the Holy Spirit does, have those moments in time. So, you know, I, again, I don't want to say the Holy Spirit can't do, but I also don't want to say the Holy Spirit has to do, and I appreciate your clarification for that. Okay? Um, when it comes to our text, moving on from Simon, uh, moving into verse 26... We're going to notice that Philip, actually let's look at verse 25. Um, Philip is going to come back and he's going to be speaking then after the the, um, rebuke of Simon the magician. Philip is going to be preaching not only in this one city, but the many villages of the Samaritans. And then Philip is going to be met by a messenger of the Lord, an angel of the Lord. He's going to be told to go south. So geographically, why is this significant in the book of Acts? Well, we've gone north and now we're going to go south on the road. Gaza is probably more... This is not a scale map. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that. Uh, he's going to be on a road to Gaza that's going to take him down through Egypt and down to Ethiopia. So he's going to be told to go south. So now we have a north-south movement, and Philip's at the heart of this. Um, Philip is later on going to be found in a city uh, just north of where we are today. We'll come back to that in just a moment. So he's going to be on the road south uh, toward Gaza, which is on the southern border of Israel. So we're, we're getting to the borderlands of David's uh, kingdom. 
And this is where that balloon continues to expand. I'm going to use that all day long. Sorry about that. Um, Ethiopia, um, it's interesting. In the Roman times, we actually have a lot, and I mentioned this earlier, in Roman literature about Ethiopia. That surprised me, to be honest, this week when I was studying it. Um, it was viewed as the ends of the earth. Kind of the mysterious, unknown ends of the earth in the, in the Roman era. That's maybe not as surprising to us. Um, but when it comes to this, what's the significance of that? Well, the gospel is getting ready to go now, not just to the Samaritans, but potentially to the very ends of the earth before it ever even gets out west to Rome. Africa is going to be reached with Christ, um, and it's going to be one of the first places the gospel goes. I find that intriguing. Um, I find that exciting. And so you and I both know this. Some of the places where the gospel is growing most today, even as the headlines read, you know, churches in the West, churches in Europe, churches in the United States are shrinking. I'm not so sure all of those are accurate numbers. But churches in Africa, churches in China, and other places are exponentially exploding with growth. Let's not be ethnocentric to assume that we're the only ones and the church is dying, because it's not. You know, gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So this is going to be seen as the ends of the earth. Now, here's the great thing about this. This eunuch, Ethiopian, as he's traveling, is reading Isaiah, a scroll of Isaiah. Now, he's likely in a, a carriage. This word chariot can be carriage as well. It can be led by horses or ox. It could be going fast. It could be going slow. But he's reading, and likely out loud, because most of the time in the ancient world, when you read, you read out loud. So it's like my wife reading my kids, right? This, this gentleman's reading. Uh, he's a scholar. He's reading. He's um, a, a eunuch, so that means he's probably castrated, maybe even dismembered which you would do if you had someone who is in charge of your harem as well, probably in the ancient world. Um, so he cannot, I want you to hear this, he has been to Jerusalem to worship at the temple, but he cannot fully convert to Judaism because he can't be, likely can't be circumcised. But even then beyond that, um, Deuteronomy says someone whose male parts are crushed can't enter the temple. So, so he is an outsider no matter what in Judaism. That's intriguing to me. Someone who wants to be an insider, wants to worship, but can't be completely an insider. So a couple other things interesting. He's reading Isaiah 53. He's going to the ends of the earth. I've given you the references in your handout. Isaiah 49.6, Isaiah 52.10, Isaiah 62.10. In the context of where he's reading in the scroll is this promise in Isaiah that God's word, that God's kingdom will extend to the very ends of the earth. Huh, that's intriguing to me. Some other things that are also intriguing about this particular eunuch. Um, Isaiah 56 verse 3 is going to talk about eunuchs being accepted into this new kingdom that's coming. Um, it's going to be, uh, sorry, these are Hebrew metaphors, they're not mine. Um, a dry tree, a eunuch is a dry tree, and he's going to be able to come into the kingdom and be a part of the offspring. Eunuchs don't have offspring. Be a part of the offspring in the kingdom. That's in the context, Isaiah 56. So I want you to just like pick up on all of these things that are going on in the background and the very like sovereignty of God that is at work that says, hey, Philip, sends an angel. I need you to go tell Philip to go south. There's a gentleman, Ethiopian. He's a eunuch. He's going to, and I don't know how, like, I don't know how Philip catches up with him. Like, is this miraculous? Maybe. Okay. But the, the dynamic here is that Philip catches up with him, finds him reading Isaiah 53. And Isaiah 53 is an intriguing passage. Um, this passage is one that, uh, you know, in high school, honestly, I've, I've said this before, was one that continued to convince me of the, of, of the historical resurrection of Jesus, but also of God's plan for that all along. 
the Jewish people didn't know what to do with Isaiah 42 through 53. There's talk in there of my servant. And there's, there's some ambiguity there because sometimes Isaiah will say, my servant Israel, my servant Israel. And then it will say, my servant as an individual, almost like a king or a prophet or a priest, my servant will help Israel or redeem Israel. And you're like, wait, what? And so there's a, my servant Israel, but then there's a representative, a king, a messiah, who's going to help and heal and save the nation of Israel. And Isaiah 53 is that shift, again, toward that individual, but that individual, surprise, is going to suffer. What? And is going to be, there's atonement language there, is going to die for the sake of the sins of the people and take that iniquity upon himself. I would encourage you this week to read Isaiah 53. We don't have time. Maybe even open up Isaiah 42 through 53 and just read the progression that is there. The, the servant songs are what these are called of, of the, the people of Israel. And so he's reading this. And as he reads this, he's asking himself these questions. You can imagine, who is this that is the servant of Israel? Because I thought it was all of Israel. No, it's actually an individual. And this is where Philip comes up. Now, this story should remind us, here's your handout, of a story in Luke chapter 24. Right after the resurrection, there's two disciples. One's named Cleopas. The other one's an unknown disciple. They're on the road to Emmaus. So notice all the things that are in common. I listen for you. There's travelers leaving Jerusalem. They just were there for worship. In Luke, they were there for the Feast of, Ta- the feast of Unleavened Bread. So they're leaving. Um, as they're leaving, a stranger comes up. Philip, a stranger. Jesus, a stranger. They don't recognize Jesus in Luke 24. And then there's a question. What are you all talking about? What are you reading? Notice the questions. And then the Old Testament is opened up. Jesus walks them through the scriptures and he tells them everything that the scriptures were saying about himself. And they still don't completely know who he is. And then there's, I'm just going to call it for lack of a better word, a sacrament. Um, in Jesus' story, Luke 24, he breaks bread at a meal. And their eyes are opened and they recognize Jesus. Here the story ends with baptism. And we will ask some questions about that. But the story ends. And then there's almost this revealing like they see, but then the traveler, Jesus or Philip, is taken away or disappears. And even here, there's some ambiguity. Does Philip just like leave quickly? It says he's snatched away. So does he just disappear and somewhere end up, does he transport somewhere else on the road? I don't know. If an angel can come to him, an angel can send him too. I do know that. But there's some, there's some commonalities with Luke 24. What have we said about the book of Acts? It's a continuation of all that Jesus began to do and to teach. But here we find Jesus being, or, or, excuse me, Philip being sent by Jesus to come along, this traveler who's on a road trying to discover the truth of who Jesus is. I believe this about Jesus. Sometimes he will create divine opportunities and d- divine appointments. Some of you have been a part of that. To where you've been asking a question, and someone comes alongside the road of life and says, hey, what are you... What are you studying these days? How are you doing? In fact, sometimes the, the question is, are you doing okay? Just a simple question. Because sometimes lead to a conversation. And then you point the way toward Jesus, the road toward Jesus. But this text, Isaiah 53, Philip's able to open up and point the way to Jesus, toward the cross, toward the resurrection. And then what do we have the Ethiopian eunuch do? He stops the carriage. He says, well, I'm ready, let's go. 
And he says, here's water, let's go. And so he is baptized there. Now sometimes, especially restoration movement and our view of the mode of baptism and the role of baptism, we make much of the, they went down into the water and then they came up out of the water. At the very least, we can acknowledge this. There was water deep enough to go down into and to say they came out of. Um, we, we could say that even the word baptism implies a, an immersion, a burial. We've said this, that baptizo, the Greek word, is to bury something. It's to bury a sword in someone's belly. It's to bury your hands in a dish to wash them. It's the burial of a ship underwater. And so likely, Philip and the eunuch go down into the water. And Philip, notice, you can't baptize yourself. You need the church. I think that's why it's significant. Just like, Philip, just like Peter and John coming to Samaria, the eunuch needs someone from the church to welcome him in, and so Philip had to go. And so Philip is there, baptizes the eunuch, and then disappears, um, whether that be miraculously or he is carried away in haste, the Holy Spirit leads him away. But Philip is actually going to go then from Gaza. Of course, he's on the way a little bit further north. to a, It used to be a Philistine city called uh, Ashdod. So he's going to go 20 miles north, and then he's going to go even further north. This is up north by the Sea of Galilee to a place called Caesarea. Uh, it's actually Caesarea Maritima, named after Caesar, so kind of like the city of Sebaste. Um, Caesarea is named by Herod the Great in honor of Caesar. This city is up here on the coast. This is where Paul's later going to be on trial. This is where the Hippodrome was, where Herod the Great told his sister to kill all the people. Um, but we're going to find Philip here 20 years later in Acts chapter 21. So apparently, uh, he sets up ministry there in this very Gentile port city. Um, he, we find out he has family there. In fact, some of his daughters are uh, prophetesses. Uh, that's hard to say. Uh, but they are uh, those who proclaim the gospel as well. And so we find Philip again. We'll pick that up in chapter 21. There's a couple maps on your handout. You can start to see some of the, the movement that is really poorly reflected on my particular uh, board here. Um, but what have we done so far? Okay, we come to chapter 9, verse 1. We've gone north. Not all the way to the border, but outside of Judea. Okay, we're outside of Judea, Samaria. We've gone south. And now the gospel is going to go with this eunuch, apparently down south of Egypt to the very ends of the earth, how the Romans would have defined it. Not a surprise then. We're going to come back north. In fact, we're going to go all the way north, eventually, to a city called Damascus, which would be in David's time period, so post-Joshua and the Promised Land and the 12 tribes of Israel, this would be one of the northernmost tribes, and it would represent David's kingdom. Now, it's actually a Gentile city. It's part of a region. Uh, this is the Sea of Galilee here. Okay, Sea of Galilee here. This region here is known as the Decapolis, the region of the ten cities. Deca just means ten, polis cities. And this city of Damascus is one of them. It's one of the uh, most ancient cities that is still occupied today, by the way. Um, so it's intriguing. Um, but we're going to find ourselves on this northern border. What's happening here? We go north, we go south. We go north, we go south. The gospel is getting ready to break loose. That's where we're going to get next week in chapter 10 with Cornelius and the Gentiles there. So this is around 35 to 36. I mentioned that before. Um, so again, we're a couple years uh, to maybe even five years after the resurrection of Jesus. 
And Saul here is that same Saul who was standing over um, the death of Stephen. And we're going to come back to his story, which is, again, um, part of this example that is there. Um, When it comes to his narrative, I've given uh, for you in the book of Acts multiple references. We're going to come to his story three times. In fact, Acts repeats things that are important. Uh, Peter's going to have to retell the story of Cornelius' conversion. We're going to hear it twice next week. We'll talk about it once, but it's going to take place twice in the book of Acts. Because in the book of Acts, things that are important happen multiple times. You hear about it. So the conversion of Saul is very important in the book of Acts. And we're going to find that Saul is on the road. Boy, my map is really getting pathetic at this point, right? Saul is on the road north from Jerusalem. And as he's on his way from Jerusalem here in the south... Up north through, he probably goes around the, around the Samaritans, uh, so he probably goes this way around the Sea of Galilee, up north to this city here. He has letters from the temple, from the chief priests, to arrest those who are Christians as far-reaching as Damascus. So he's really taken, I mean, he says this about his faith, I was zealous about the law. He's, he's zealous about this, enough to persecute those who are followers of the way. And as he makes his way up, he, of course, has this encounter Likely, this is pretty close to the city of Damascus from some of the stories and the accounts that we have. And Jesus appears in there, and we know this. The bright light shines around Saul, and he's blinded. And he finds out he's blind for three days. I don't know how significant that is, but I find that intriguing. That Saul is blind for three days. And then, just like the rest of us, he needs someone to show him the light. And so Ananias is told, I need you to go find, at the house of Judas... Saul of Tarsus. I need you to go find him, and I need you to tell him about me. And in fact, the words there, notice the words, and I've given them in your handout. There's three imperatives. Go, look, go. They're command words. Great commission words, aren't they? Go, look for Saul, go. The question that hangs in the air is, will you go? Now what happens if Ananias doesn't go to Saul? Well, the rest of the book of Acts doesn't happen. Post chapter 11. Ananias is sometimes seen as a minor character in our stories. I get that. And that's sometimes true in some of our lives too, that some of the people we reach actually are going to have a greater impact than what we'll ever, ever be able to imagine. It's that whole ripple effect where you throw a stone in the lake and you realize the ripple now goes across the entire lake. Ananias, in his willingness to say, he says two things. He says, here I am. It's an Old Testament phrase. When God calls... In Hebrew, the word, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, is hineni, or the phrase is, hineni, here I am, Lord. Samuel says this, hineni, here I am. Abraham, hineni, here I am. So here I am, Lord, go, go. And then he departs in verse 17, and he goes to Straight Street. And I don't know about you, but I just find all of this rather intriguing to me, that Saul is, Saul is like persecuting the church. He's on his way. It's, he's blinded and he can't see. And I need you to go set him straight. What street's he on? Ah, oh, straight street. Oh, it figures, right? At some point, the sovereignty of God's like, yeah, I had that all under control. Now, they're actually, like, when you look at ancient cities and the way they're laid out, there actually is a straight street in Damascus. That's intriguing to me. So we have this dynamic to where Ananias goes, and we're going to come to this story again and again, um, but we find that eventually Saul is healed, scales fall, crusty, I don't know what this is, right? Sleepy seed stuff from his eye, I don't know what it is. Some of you have allergies, you had your eyes like sealed shut before, I've had that happen before when I was a kid. But his eyes are opened, he's able to see, 
And at that point in time, he is immersed, he's baptized. And then we find that he is going to now proclaim the gospel. Now, I want to interject here for just a moment. We have a couple minutes. Galatians 1 tells us that it's in this time period, after he is converted to become a disciple of Jesus, that Saul actually, instead of going right to Jerusalem, goes down to Arabia, back on the other side of the Dead Sea, this region down here. And he's there for about three years. Luke, as he's telling the story, telescopes it so we could move on in the action. Okay? So Paul tells us in Galatians, no, actually, I came down here for about three years, came back up here. When I came back up here, they wanted to arrest me again because I was preaching the gospel. And so I had to be lowered out of the city in a basket. He came into the city with an entourage. Picture this. He came into the city with an entourage and official letters from the temple. He leaves the city through a window in a basket because people want to kill him. And so the Jews are seeking to kill Paul. He goes down eventually, again, three years now have passed. So it says this in the text, okay? Many days had passed. Well, 9 verse 23, it actually is maybe about three years have passed. So Luke's right. He just telescopes it together. Paul is going to go back down to Jerusalem. And when he goes back to Jerusalem, guess who he's going to preach to? There's those Hellenistic Jews in Jerusalem. So that's in verse 29. We also find not only are they wanting to kill him, the disciples are afraid of him. You would be too. He was wanting to arrest families. He was wanting to persecute, maybe kill them. He killed Stephen. So they're afraid of him. So who comes along? Barnabas, the one whose name means son of encouragement. Oh, he came back into the story. Yeah, he came back into the story. That's how the book of Acts goes. Here's what I want you to see as we wrap up our time together. Paul gets a lot of spotlight. But had it not been for people like Ananias people like Barnabas, we would not have the stories of conversions and ministry that we have in Paul. One of the things I know that's true in the church is it really does take the church. It takes the church to disciple an individual. And so behind Saul, behind Paul and his story, is not only the story of the Holy Spirit and Jesus coming in and renovating his life and remaking his life, but it's people. People like Barnabas, the son of encouragement, who says, I'll welcome you even though they're afraid of you. I'll take that risk on you. And, and I'll, I'll walk you through and introduce you to people. And I'll, I'll journey with you. And it's people like Ananias who goes, you want me to go where? He came into town to kill us, to persecute us, to arrest us. And you want me to go to his house now? Okay, Jesus, I'll go to his house. And we're going to find that this is going to continue. Why? Because, landing on this phrase, the ministry and the mission of Jesus continues even when we face the opposition of Jesus. So these stories, they all tie together. And remind us that the gospel is meant to go out. We are meant to be uncomfortable. We're meant to get uncomfortable. We're meant to sacrifice. We're meant to risk as we take the gospel out. So as we come back together next time, what we're going to find is Peter now is going to take the gospel. And he is going to unlock the door for the Gentiles. And it's going to be awkward. Peter, take this and eat it. You want me to eat what? You sure? You sure? And he's going to have to ask multiple times. And then all of a sudden the Gentiles... And the Jewish people at the table of Jesus are going to be eating together. That's new. And it's going to change the world. All right, we'll see you next week. Thanks again for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. We hope that this teaching is helping you discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. If you're interested in learning more about Christ Church, visit us online at cco.church.